All right, we're back with installment two of our uh, interview with Brian Kehu. He's got some amazing unreleased audio here of the eruption room mics. What else do you have, Brian? Well, what I want to bring to you today is some things just that are, are maybe worth hearing that tell some history, but also I don't want to give away things that would be coming out later, things that could be part of a future project. So I want to be careful that we can interest people in what's going on, but also protect the interests of the company and the band that they have good material. This is something that's actually, of course, everyone's heard before. It's the famous eruption track from the first album, which is that great guitar solo. Um, this was done in Studio One, which is a bit less of a bright sound, a little more uh, thick sound and less echoey, I would say, than this big room in two. And so you can hear the sound of that room and the drum mics and so forth. This is just basically a room mic or a drum mic overhead that you pick up the actual sound of what they were doing. And I think one of the takeaways from this is you've heard the mixed record, the finished sound, but you can hear that guitar sound is really coming through from the amp. It's not a trick of EQ done later. Certainly there's enhancements done and some delays in the chamber, but we get a nice version of the sound. And if you listen to the middle section on the record, it goes away for a moment and then comes back in. And I always thought, well, maybe they did two takes or they edited it, but it's actually just a break in what they were playing and you'll hear for a moment why they turned it down. after that track and they began to play you really got me just as a reference point maybe but even the delays at the end which is a univox little cheapy tape echo I used to have one when I was a kid has a little tape cartridge in it like an eight track tape you used to have and that's his analog tape echo going on that goes down an octave at the very end just like that straight through the amp you know nothing added 
and uh, it's a fantastic performance. I mean, I don't know if there were more takes of it because we never found more outtake tapes, but it's unbelievable to hear. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm noticing just listening to it today, like the bass is quite loud in the room. Um, they were really cutting things together, not expecting them to separate as you do later. You know, let's redo the guitar part. Or let's. They didn't go for that. They went for, let's get everybody playing together, get a good take, and then move on. So. It's not about isolation as much as people do now. I brought you a picture today. Yeah, thank you. That is marvelous of them in Studio One. We discovered this picture through Greg Renoff's great book about uh, Van Halen rising, and he got it from Don Landy, the engineer, who took a great picture in Studio One just going through the window, just snapped a shot of them tracking, and uh, we're looking at the guitar, which is the, the uh, Ibanez Destroyer. Uh, at the point in time it doesn't have a cut out of it as it did very soon after but some of the first album was done with it uh, if you listen to songs that don't have a tremolo bar that's how you can tell which songs that is so the one they're happen to be tracking at that moment is Jamie's crying and we know it just because of which songs were done in which rooms and so forth Ooh. yeah did you know that eruption was done in one I had a feeling because of the sound of it to me it's more of a dull sound when I think of the sound of rock candy and the drums and things like that from Montrose, I think of the big, brighter sound in two. And yet, in my mind, I pictured in Studio Two. Now, there is an argument that Ted says it was done in number two. Ted Templeman recalls specifically going to get coffee at some machine around this room and hearing them play and says, let's record that. So, you've also got paperwork, though, that's well, turning Well, you know, <laughs> I went and pulled all the invoices. So, yeah. um, details details. So I pulled all the invoices for the demo sessions they did in April, and then I pulled all the invoices for the first record, which started on August 29th, 1977. And they kind of float between, I mean, we can go into detail a little bit, but they go in, they start in Studio One, they start in, they float to two, they go back to one, they go back to two, so it was a lot of going back and forth, depending on what they were doing, whether they were tracking, overdubbing, or mixing, ultimately mixing. But I did find the guitar solo invoice, which, you know, we would document the songs on each work order, and on, I'll have to give you the exact day, I think it was October 4th, and there's a guitar solo, it's got has to be Eruption, and it's Studio One. In fact, on the original boxes it says guitar solo, years later or months later it was scratched out and they wrote Eruption and the catalog number of the Warner Brothers song. Let's see, I actually have the invoice right here. Cool. So this is the actual invoice, and yeah, as you can see, it's uh, October 4th. They did the Little Dreamer that day in Studio One, and then they did Guitar Solo. Hmm. So, hopefully, uh, I don't know. Good hopefully detail. that's where it was recorded. That has to be it. And at this point, we have to believe paperwork more than human memory sometimes. I have yeah, my memories, cool. but they modify according to photos and what I recall from the day, so. 43 um, years ago. Yes, It is course. 43 <laughs> years ago. And um, everybody's memory's a little fuzzy. What's up next, Brian? The other day we talked about guitar sounds, and I know a lot of people like myself are guitar nerds, and there's a lot of them out there. You'll meet more and more here this Absolutely. month on the web channel. <laughs> but uh, the sound of that 
guitar changes over the years, but it's certainly down to the way he plays and his choices he made. Very, very creative and unique. Um, I was thinking about the past and how many people are really that far ahead of the curve. There's probably Les Paul, number one. Decades later, Jimi Hendrix. To an extent, Pete Townsend, who was doing weird things with his guitar and feedback before Hendrix. And then also Ed coming up. They're all people that tinkered with their gear as well as invented techniques, different weird ways of playing the guitar. They're pushing to get sounds that are just not the normal. So. One of the things that I mentioned was uh, JBL speakers. Now this is something we see live uh, on his cabinets at the time. These speaker cones with silver domes in them and they're very bright and fizzy sounding. So you can hear on the tapes that we've been through that there's always two mics on the guitar channel and one is bright and one is dark. In the picture I brought you though, there's a single 412 cabinet being recorded and two mic stands, one we can see when we can't see. And your setup sheet says SM56s, which is a sure mic, essentially the same guts as a 57 right. with a little different kind of handle to it. So essentially the same mic, but you can also get a brighter, darker sound by miking the cone right in the middle and off to the side. It will change the tone. So maybe Don was doing that instead, but it seems to be somewhere in the middle. There's two sounds that make up that guitar tone. And I was going to play you the differences. It may be hard to hear a little bit, but here's your Really Got Me guitar track without the effects added, just straight from the channel. And this is a brighter sound. Well, edit. Clicking again, try it again. top end. And then you've got the deeper sound. Well, they definitely complement each other. And both of those Absolutely. qualify as that guitar sound. Yeah. The same way when we heard the room mics, you can hear he's got the guitar sound in the room, but it's in again in how you pick it up. The combination of things really brings out the probably the depth and dimension of the low funk of a deep cabinet sound and then the edge of the attack of the sound. And uh, it's the combination there too. Um, I was gonna play you one which again, this will never come out. It doesn't need to uh, because it's not a rarity or an outtake, but it's the ending of Jamie's Crying is a new song for them for those sessions that written it before the album, but it wasn't on the old demos. And the song fades out. It's got guitar overdubs, it's got a lot happening to it, but here's the actual ending of it, which I'd never heard before, and I don't think most people have ever heard. just a simple change, just something we've not heard before. And of course, everyone's used to the record as some do fading out before mm -hmm. that piece. That's very neat. Yeah, definitely. Would you have kept that in? 
I I like the what's on the album. I'll scale that around. Um, it it sounds more like a record when things fade out. It sounds more like a single on the radio, and I know that that was one of the specific songs recorded to make the record more friendly and more accessible to people, um, as they did with like Dance the Night Away or even Jump Later. These are you know intended to be familiar, friendly songs. So when you've got dark, heavy stuff like uh, I'm the One and Atomic Punk and things like that, that are not really happy songs, not fun. Um, not that Jamie's Crying is a happy song, but it's a little more sing-along, it's a little more fun to do, so. It just seems like, a, again, it's just a production choice, just how they went with it, and something we would never put out that on a box set because it's the same record. It's just Jamie's Crying, but a long version of it would never come out, too. And this was a funny one. I want to mention, uh, almost unrelated, but there are things happening around L.A. that sort of influenced what they did. Um, one of my good friends is Pat Smear, who was in, he's in the Foo Fighters now, Nirvana at the end, germs. Uh, the Germs, of course, in the early days. And Van Halen was around this punk scene. We talked about the decline of classic hard rock. Punk rock was in, New Wave was coming in. But the Van Halen guys even went to the whiskey and so forth. There's pictures in Slash Magazine of them dressed up as punks, <laughs> pretending to be an Australian punk band with like torn clothes and safety pins and their hair all done up. So they were making fun of and hanging out with punk people at the time. But there's a band called The Dills that was an LA classic. And these two brothers, uh, Chip and Tony Kinman, Chip is a friend of mine who's the guitar player. Chip had a guitar, which was a white Les Paul copy. And he wrapped it with black tape, randomly. About a year before the Van Halen thing. Uh, uh -huh. And I asked him, did you ever see those guys around? And he said, yeah, we didn't know who they were. They used to come to our shows sometimes and watch us play. And they weren't they weren't really punk rock in the Sex Pistols way, but you know, just a rock band and so forth. But he said, we didn't know who they were, but we all said, the hippies are here. Those hippie guys with long hair and bell bottoms <laughs> are back. And so there's a definite, at least a predecessor to that guitar look. If you look up Chip Kinman and guitar or the Dills, you'll see him playing this guitar, which has the random black stripes across a white guitar and uh, a few people in town have said oh yeah that's definitely where it came from so I said you still have that guitar long ago gone too but the other little piece I brought which is again it's not a piece of music as much as talking but I always love to hear people chattering between takes I wish more people had rolled tape uh, between songs instead of just cutting music because years later you get a sense of personalities or a sense of how people work together. Wow, but definitely. there was a weird group in LA called Zolar X, and Zolar X is a favorite of mine. They were weird space people, and they were kind of hard rock, like Rush, sort of, but weirder. And they had antennas, and they had spacesuits. And they're literally playing around LA at Rodney, Rodney's English Disco and clubs like that. But everybody knew them because they always pretended to be space people and they were always talking in funny voices. They even went to the supermarket with a boom box playing space noises while they went shopping, you know. Solar X. Yeah, and there's a guy who, yeah. a friend of ours, yeah, saw them at up. the Starwood. <laughs> You'll find them. <laughs> There'll be a picture for the, for the interview here you can throw up. But one of our friends saw them coming out of the Starwood and a gang of guys beat up one of the guys in the parking lot. And he said, he got up, he said, Earthlings are ridiculous in his space voice. <laughs> And here on one of the Van Halen tapes, David Lee Roth is copying them and talking about 
humans and so forth. You'll hear oh, this wow. one. Here comes a little chat. And Dave uses this. Perhaps of tomorrow. Come on, Dave. Now, humans are fun. <laughs> now, Zolarex did play with Van Halen. I think one of the last Zolarex shows was opening for them about 1980, which doesn't make any sense to me at all, although they both had kind of a hard rock sound. They didn't fit the audience at all. But it's funny that he obviously was making fun of them on the tape here, and I don't think almost anybody else but me and a few people would get that. But they knew who Zolarex yeah. were. Yeah. I want a Zolarex t-shirt now. You can buy them online. Really? I, they have Zolarex masks, in fact. I got one of those, too. I should have worn it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who sold Eddie the guitar for 400 bucks we were talking about? In the oh. Um, the, uh, sold the amp. Oh, it was the amp. Yeah, okay. so uh, Doug Messenger. I talked to him today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I guess he had this uh, amp that... He let Montrose borrow when they were making the record uh, Rock Candy, and then it was his amp. Oh, he told me what amp it was, and uh, but I, I don't know. Could it be head. Lab Series? Uh, let me look. Or not? Because there's a mention in I think the Ted Templeman book that they were interested in borrowing the amp used on the Montrose record. He says it's a hundred watt Super Lead Marshall. Ah, okay. And he, Ronnie Montrose used it on Rock Candy. And then he said later in 1979, he sold the amp to Ed for $400. Mm. So it's somewhere, it's probably up at the house. I don't know. I've heard a lot of things about the, that famous amp. And one is that it was stock, and Eddie lied about it being modded so everyone <laughs> would mod their amps. I don't know if that's true. Here's what I can tell you about it, and I've dug deep into it. Um, Wait, uh, before you go, yeah. I've also heard that it's George Lynch's amp. Oh, wow. And Eddie traded him and never traded him back. So I, I don't know if you know anything about that. I've I was heard just about a George Lynch connection, even for maybe a later record or barring something, so there may be truth there. But uh, there's a guy named Fred Tacone who is an amp uh, manufacturer and a friend of ours. He does divided by 13 amps. He knew and played with Van Halen back in the club days, and he used to ask Ed about the equipment. And what he said was, and both things are true. There's a modification, but the amp is stuck. What does that mean? The Variac, which people have talked about, mm -hmm. and Ed lied about it. He said he turned it up higher and like cranked it up into the amp sometimes. It was like 90, wasn't it? It's the opposite. You yeah. turn down the voltage going into the amp, and you're starving the amp for power. But that doesn't quite work. I've seen people trying it out. It works in a way, but it's not the result. The result is to rebias the amp then, given the low voltage coming in. That is the modification. So if you went and plugged it straight back into the wall, it might fry your tubes because it's getting too much voltage suddenly. But you starve the amp coming in, it affects certain parts of the circuit, and then you boost the voltage going to some of the tubes, those uh, biasable, and then you get a different response. And basically the subtlety of it is maybe a little more compression and a little more zing to it, I would say. It's not as dynamic, but it's a little more compressed and smooth sounding. So when people have studied the amp and they have taken it apart and said, there are no mods. No, it wouldn't be modified with circuitry, although an adjustment of the tone cap, I think is what they're doing to make it a little fatter. Some amps have that. 
but the reality is the major thing you would do would be variac it down 90 89 volts ish mm -hmm. right around there and then to adjust the bias up inside and I believe there's an amp or two made nowadays that have an actual switch to do that it drops the voltage and at the same time it rebiases the tube so you can buy a stock amp uh, Pete Thorne has one and told me about it so I know they have amps now that you can just flip a switch for whichever tubes are in there yes yeah I mean things are so much better and easier now back in those days it was voodoo and mysterious most guitar players didn't know anything about their pickups they didn't know anything about their equipment even if they were equipment centric very few outside of Joe Walsh really knew what they were playing through and how things worked. And now people are all picky about certain fizzy caps and I want those kind of bumblebee caps on my amp and I want these kind of transformers. I don't think anyone who was a great musician in those days knew that much about their equipment as, as we do now. Yeah. But as we said over and over, it's fun to play with, it's fun to experiment and try to chase things, but the real key is in the person themselves. Ed sounds great on different guitars. He's playing different guitars on the first album and people never notice. Yeah. So, and all the way through the career, different equipment, different amps, and it still sounds like him, so. Can I ask another question, if, if you yeah. know? How does he do the delay on Dancing in the Streets? Oh, I think that's just the triplet echo, which probably goes back to Albert Lee, a group band called Head, Hands, and Feet. Two echo plexes, or is it? Good question, and I don't know because they did that one up at 5150. We don't have the tapes for that to play with. Is it? Oh, no, it's here yeah, on Diver Down. Diver right, Down, yeah, Diver Down still. So they're doing it here. Um, and I don't know. I mean, on the tape, it's just tracked that way, so probably before the amp. He always um, did delay before the amp. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it's one thing you notice um, many people have an effect setup, or if you're doing plugins on your computer now, you'll run an amplifier and then you put an echo on it. And that's one of the things that used to be different in the old days was actually to, if you put an echo in front of the amp, it's like hitting a chord and then the second chord being half as loud on the echo comes out cleaner as if you turn the guitar down. So it does sound different to put an echo in front of the amp before the distortion. And that's quite common. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always wonder because if you look at the tablature, you just place three notes Yeah. in every chord and then you have that huge delay that sets the beat. Yeah, and the triplet effect, as far as I first heard it, was this Albert Lee guy, who's an amazing country and otherwise guitar player, um, was doing it, and you put an echo one, two, and. You put it at that beat. Mm -hmm. And that creates this great thing that U2 has used on a million songs, and Pink Floyd did it on Run Like Hell, and other people have since figured it out. You don't just put an echo on the beat, you put it on the and of two. Boom, bada, boom, bada over and over again and it gets this very complicated thing with very simple work that's the same tempo and setup as cathedral i believe where he plays and it sounds like notes jumping all over the place yeah. it's complicated but it's not as complicated as it sounds yeah does sound complicated yeah <laughs> amazing so we've heard some cool outtakes shall yeah, we move funny. in and talk a bit yes definitely. see some notes great it's anything so educational and entertaining just to uh, in the 20 seconds and that that david lee roth uh, stuff <laughs> that's amazing that was cool. can you play that one more time oh yep let me see here the talking with zola rx yeah. yeah let's get it you guys ready 
Come on, tomorrow. Now, humans are fine. It says the hits of tomorrow with a fake echo on it too, and also that um, you know you hear them still. Can you close your door? He's in the vocal booth cutting live. This is the song "Fools" from Women and Children First, I think, and. Uh, just chatter beforehand. It probably will never come out or be heard. But mm -hmm. again, I enjoy hearing people relate and chat. There's bits and pieces that may come out in the future if it ever does. So I'm hoping that they can all get stuff together and, and make a nice career retrospective someday. Would be cool. Absolutely. Find some more live shows, find some more demos. It would be amazing. All right. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Brian.